0: This interview with Dr. Raymond Pete was recorded on January seventh, two 2012. Well, welcome to Politics and Science. I'm your host, John Barkhausen, and this week I'm once again very pleased to have on my show Dr. Raymond Pete, who has a Ph.D. in biology and also has studied extensively in the fields of physiology and endocrinology, and in my opinion is a uh, very learned science historian. Uh, Ray, do you want to add anything to that bio or fix it?
1: Oh, no. That's okay.
0: Okay. Um, uh, this show is inspired by two letters that uh, Ray Pete wrote. Uh, it's on his website, raypete.com. I think both articles are up there. Uh, one is called Milk in Context, Allergy, Ecology, and Some Myths. And the other is Vegetables, Etc. Who Defines Food? And both of them take on the issue of our, the quality of our food and uh, how it's evolved or devolved over the years, and in this show today i 'd like to discuss various foods and how they 've changed or been changed and how our culture um, and food production processes and our environment have influenced the changes. Um, many of us feel that if we eat the basic food groups we 'll get the nutrition we need to be healthy but uh, Ray, uh, you write in these newsletters. At one point, that good nutrition involves much more than essential nutrients, uh, so i'd just like to maybe back up a little bit and start at the beginning. How do we decide what is nutritious for us, and how are these decisions traditionally made as opposed to now
1: um, well, traditionally, people just uh, would eat something that tasted good, and if they survived and stayed healthy, their, their families and descendants would keep eating it. Uh, so each area evolved uh, pretty safe mixtures of foods. But uh, as soon as organization got involved, uh, pharaohs or, or kings and dukes and so on, uh, and eventually corporations, uh, they decided people should eat uh, what gave them the best profit. And so uh, uh, the health of the people uh, varied uh, according to the convenience of who was in charge of the economy. And uh, since World War II, well, I guess the Germans really started it uh, when they were blockaded in uh, the First World War. They had a good advanced chemical industry, and so they started learning how to make uh, substitute foods, substitute uh, materials for war, and so on. And uh, so, so they uh, used it for civilians' survival, and by the Second World War, uh, they had uh, developed uh, pretty good imitation foods. Uh, for example, uh, they fed the Russian prisoners of war on uh, uh, sawdust bread, that resembled bread but had no nutritional value. And uh, the FDA uh, saw the success of that, I guess, and uh, decided, even though in the 1940s they had said that gums weren't decent for human consumption, they produced some kind of biological damage generally. But uh, they finally uh, agreed with the corporations Uh, that it was okay to add fillers like sawdust, cellulose, uh, seaweed gum, uh, various uh, uh, tree gums, and so on. So that now uh, a a baker recently said that he hadn't realized he could make a good loaf of bread with 18% sawdust. That's
0: astounding. I remember uh, when the fiber craze sort of hit the, general culture uh, there were there were breads in our supermarket here i think maybe arnold or i'm not too sure about that but one of the brands uh definitely was advertising extra fiber and in the ingredients was sawdust
1: uh, yeah now i think they have a more uh, diplomatic way of saying that i think they say nutritional fiber
0: uh-huh <laughs> and that can be when they say that that can be sawdust you believe
1: Yeah. um, Anytime there's uh, a pleasant-sounding unfamiliar ingredient in the food, it's probably a waste product from industry. Um, The um, chitin, uh, various waste products from the shrimp industry uh, are now used in food as well as health foods. Uh, If you look at each industry and see what they had a problem getting rid of, then you'll see the food technologists learning how to make people eat it.
0: Ah, that's very interesting. So the food waste just comes around again, gets recycled into the system again.
1: Uh, Yeah, for example, the um, uh, EPA was uh, having complaints from uh, insect infestation and such from the mountains of uh, pulp waste from the orange juice industry. And they told the industry to do something with their horrendous quantities of of pulp, and uh, the, by using microbial enzymes, they found that they could make it water-soluble and have creamy orange juice,
0: mm. <laughs> uh,
1: pulpy, pulpy, fibrous orange juice, but it happens to be a, a chemical that would never occur in the natural fruit, and uh, it uh, has very unpredictable health results in the intestine because it's something people would never have been exposed to naturally. Um, The the fish industry had a a similar uh, interaction with the Environmental Protection Agency. They were uh, either dumping their uh, fish processing waste into the uh, ocean where they uh, were processing or hauling it inland for landfill, but it was so stinky, uh, the the EPA told them to uh, find other ways to dispose of it and uh, uh, that's where they came up with the fish protein powders for uh, sending to famine areas or uh, using as, as a food additive in the U.S. and fish oil so that the fat and, and protein found health food uses
0: yeah that's a the solution to pollution is distribution it's, it's a saying I've heard. Um, well, that doesn't sound very appetizing, I must say. But I guess if you can sell it, it uh, this brings us back to uh, convincing people to e- to eat things as food when they otherwise might not think it is food. And It is interesting that uh, one culture will eat something uh, that's completely abhorrent to another culture, like they, they do eat insects in Africa, I believe, and consider them a delicacy, whereas... In, in this country, that's not considered to be a normal thing to do or even appetizing.
1: Um, yeah. Um, uh, once when I was visiting friends in Mexico, uh, I ate with them, and there was a nice little thing that was sort of like a a, you know, a salmon cake a patty, mm-hmm. uh, a, a mildly fishy-tasting thing. And I asked what it was, and they said, uh, we'll tell you after you. <laughs> Uh, finished. And, uh, <laughs> Yikes! Uh, they said it was a mosquito cake. Wow! A, a mosquito larvae.
0: You're kidding. <laughs> that sounds skimmed
1: off. Skimmed off a pond, I guess.
0: Uh, and and they can skim off enough larvae to make a cake.
1: Uh, yeah, uh, they have very fine nets, especially for that. Uh, they get some some minnows, but. Uh, that happened to be the very little mosquito wigglers.
0: And that's a traditional food of Mexico?
1: That particular area, it was um, over on the eastern side, uh, somewhere near Jalapa.
0: And how did that sit in your stomach after you learned what it was?
1: Oh, very well. It oh, good. It tasted just like eating a salmon patty.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, well, that's, that's interesting. So... um how 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 do we decide what food is? It sounds like you're saying that basically we're told at this point what's food and what isn't, and and our instincts okay. aren't really working. Or
1: oh yeah, um, I, I think it's it's the thought process. Um, uh, one of the ugliest uh, uh, Mexican food products, I think, is the um, fungus-infected corn kernel. <laughs> it makes a big blue swelling on the corn cob. uh, it's a mushroom growing in the corn but it stimulates a tumor in the the corn so it's somewhere between a tumor and a fungus but it it makes a very pleasant, you can buy them canned in the US um, but it's a very pleasant uh, semi-mushroom tasting material
0: Hmm. and and that's something that isn't a traditional food but is something that has been adapted to for modern use,
1: um, yeah, it it is a traditional food, very uh, oh. uh, old old source. Uh, it, it just occurs spontaneously in in the corn, but I guess they can infect corn to make it industrially.
0: Hmm. And do you feel like most of the f- or a lot of the foods that we eat now are basically influenced by uh, industrial marketing? I
1: yeah, you know, almost entirely. Oh. About 40 or 50 years ago, I read that uh, the food industry had been uh, testing various things against their uh, panel of experts, and they found that the public taste preferred artificial flavors over real flavors in things like ice cream, and mm. uh, they had been so trained.
0: It's hard to know where to go This is such a huge topic But uh, since you mentioned ice cream I, I know that at one time And maybe it's still true That th- they were actually exempt From revealing what's, what their ingredients are uh, The ice cream lobby somehow obtained An exemption from the the law By which people have to declare What's in the foods So they can say artificial flavors And it's you know a bunch of chemicals basically uh,
1: Yeah, that's still the general practice And worse than that They don't even have to mention on the label something which is actually present. If it was uh, mostly removed, they call it a a processing aid or incidental ingredient. And even though it's really there, even though they uh, intended to remove the bulk of it, some of it's there and can cause allergic or toxic reactions, but they don't have to say it on the label.
0: Huh? So that's some a, a bunch of chemicals, or one chemical, or anything they want to use.
1: Anything, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Um, if, even if if everyone is following those extremely useless rules of the FDA, um, there apparently the industry doesn't take the FDA very seriously because I've bought ice cream. Uh, from companies that said all natural ingredients uh, and I would generally intend to buy uh, uh, just the vanilla because I didn't really trust them but uh, sometimes I bought vanilla pure white ice cream from the company that used only natural ingredients but it would have a very intense strawberry flavor Huh? and Other times from the same company, I bought uh, what was labeled vanilla ice cream, and it tasted just like vanilla ice cream, but it didn't have the black flecks that their vanilla normally did. Instead, it was dark brown chocolate colored, but absolutely vanilla tasting. So from those uh, two or three times that uh, someone at the factory uh, messed up, it, it... Proved that they use a brown coloring and a pink coloring and artificial flavoring instead of the three natural ingredients that they claim.
0: Uh, might as well just cut to the chase here And one of the things I wanted to talk about today since we're on the subject of ice cream and that is that uh, a lot of times ice cream makers use uh, thickeners um, the gums you were speaking of uh, carrageenan and locust bean gum and uh, there's another one, too. I can't think of um, guar gum. And, uh, in fact, I think everybody thinks those might actually be good for you, but maybe you can explain to people, and a lot of people out there have allergic reactions to foods, um, why these gums may actually be the thing that's causing the allergic reaction and and not the milk that the ice cream is made with.
1: Oh, <laughs> Well, the FDA recognized that problem 60 years ago, uh, and the literature is full of uh, published reactions to all of those gums. Uh, carrageenan and alginate uh, from seaweed are probably the worst of them. Uh, uh, carrageenan is recognized to be carcinogenic to the intestine and liver and to produce inflammation. It's a standard lab method for producing uh, arthritis or uh, inflammation of any organ that they want to study, Uh, but the the assumption, I guess, is that if it only uh, irritates the intestine and causes cancer in the liver, uh, that is tolerable, Uh, but what they're neglecting is that these particles or fibers Uh, even much bigger than the molecules that have the gum function. Uh, Particles of that size are fairly massively passed through the intestine. If you imagine that uh, when a person is under stress, even bacteria and larger particles uh, up to the size of a, a red blood cell or larger can go right from the intestine into the bloodstream. Uh, where then the immune system has uh, direct interaction with them. And if the particle is big enough, it can uh, stop the flow through a, a capillary or arteriole. Uh, so small additives uh, aren't going to stay entirely in the intestine. Uh, the particles of, of silicon dioxide, people say, oh, that's just harmless like material, but uh, when it's produced by uh, vaporization or precipitation uh, uh, they they might call it fumed silica or uh, colloidal silica what's it um, used for um, <laughs> almost everything they can u- use it to um, c- create a viscous consistency in in uh, cosmetics and and uh, soaps and uh, any food that needs a new texture, uh, it's almost all uh, vitamins and drugs are now using that or something like it uh, to to make the powder flow nicely when they're running it through the machine, and uh, it it's um. Basically a very finely powdered glass, but the powder uh, it's much smaller than uh, um, the the particles of starch, for example, that can be absorbed uh, across into the bloodstream and, and at a certain size uh, they very easily go from the blood into tissue cells, and at a certain size range, they are very uh, able because uh, sensitization so that uh, something like silicosis even though it's supposedly uh, being amorphous rather than crystalline uh, supposedly they aren't going to cause the, uh, the, the silicosis like reaction uh, the things that people get from the silicone implants and so on but there is an actual immunological similarity and overlap when the particles are of a certain size um, and there are various names for that, but silicon dioxide or silica is the the basic description
0: yeah and and so that gets into your tissues and and causes uh, uh
1: chronic inflammation okay uh, degenerative inflammatory changes i um, see uh, such as uh, lupus like symptoms uh um, the Irma is probably the, the most common thing caused by the silica reaction.
0: Now, it's, it's actually hard to buy any processed food now that doesn't have some of these things. Carrageenan, uh, I was very interested in your newsletter that we're talking about today. I think it was in Milk in Context, Allergies, Ecology, and Some Myths that's available on your website, raypete.com. Uh You were saying carrageenan... Uh, is some kind of a pseudo, uh, causes a pseudo latex allergy reaction. And I was wondering if you could talk about that, because a lot of people are allergic to latex.
1: Um, yeah, well, there, the carrageenan is, one of the arguments is that in its, uh, unbroken down form, fresh out of the seaweed, uh, it doesn't cause cancer, even though it might cause horrible inflammation but when you eat it it passes through the intestine where bacteria (laughs) break it down and the broken down form of carrageenan is recognized as carcinogenic Ah. Uh, but uh, try to communicate uh, the logic of that to any of the regulatory agencies Mm -hmm. and uh, they all uh, uh, you know just reveal that they're serving industry and convenience rather than protecting the public
0: well that seems sort of odd because a lot of things are fairly harmless when they're outside your body but when you eat them they're poisonous so I don't see why that would be hard for them to yeah, understand
1: uh, well the, they, they specifically say that undegraded uh, 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 the, the fiber undegraded isn't carcinogenic but degraded it is carcinogenic but they neglect to point out that your intestine has bacteria that can degrade it.
0: Mm.
1: And uh, the uh, the reaction to latex is really a, a general phenomenon that uh, plants all have some kind of defense reaction. And uh, even under the best conditions, uh, they'll produce some of these, but they are able to adapt so that when they're injured, they increase their defensive material so that if, if a bug bites a plant, uh, it expresses the enzyme that can break down the fibrous material of, of the bug, the chitin. Uh, and so chitinase is a general defensive enzyme that is, is intended to dissolve uh, bugs and uh, any pest that invades the plant. But when you stress a plant in any way, it um, defends itself and increases all of these uh, defensive toxic chemicals. And uh, simply uh, mistreating a plant by growing it in a monoculture, uh, f- forcing it with with not well-balanced fertilizers and so on, the plant is intensely stressed and so produces increased amounts of these um, defensive toxins and enzymes. And so the um, a plant that's growing in the wild might not be allergenic or toxic, but once you've uh, cultivated it under uh, extreme conditions uh, for generations, it will... Um, Produce things such as toxic latex that will kill people who are sensitized to it. Uh, uh, but lots of lots of stressed plants can produce exactly the same kind of enzyme. so it isn't just literal latex, but it, it's uh, uh, any stressed plant that, that uh, is able to produce similar enzymes.
0: So you're saying that uh, late people are allergic to latex because the plant is purposely producing a toxic chemical to protect itself when it's wounded? Yeah. Uh, like a latex. Latex comes from a rubber tree. Is that right?
1: Um, yeah. That's um, bananas and rubber trees are the, the they, they were the first ones to identify the, the same kind of allergic response, a, a cross reaction between a natural latex rubber, uh, for example, uh, surgical gloves or, or other s- surgical materials, uh, and bananas, uh, the, the people who um, have a dangerous reaction to one will usually have it to the other. But uh, those people will also react to many other kinds of fruit. I think kiwis are are a major uh, overlap, uh, but um, probably almost any plant that is industrialized and and forced into production uh, will increase their production of these things and uh, so they're recognizing that uh, a person who's allergic to bananas is likely to be allergic to six or eight or ten other uh, similar fruits not even similar fruits uh, but uh, industrialized fruits
0: Hmm. and not all not all people are affected that way. Why maybe this is too big a question, but why are some people affected by those plant toxins, uh, and others not
1: um, The, the um, person who is under stress is um, the, the um, I think in that newsletter I mentioned that estrogen induces a similar protein in humans mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Uh, Things like estrogen, which intensify the stress reaction, uh, are probably increasing uh, throughout, especially the industrialized populations. And uh, the the biological function of estrogen is to uh, stress and activate uh, tissues to get them growing quickly, Uh, but it should only act for 12 or 24 hours per month. Uh, to activate and uh, make the tissues take up water, swell up, start growing and so on. Uh, but when we're chronically exposed to um, industrial estrogens in the environment, um, that activates our uh, stress reactions. Uh, in the intestine, for example, it uh, makes the intestine more permeable and uh, will simply take up more things, but it also uh, activates uh, particular patterns of, of enzymes. It activates um, enzymes in the intestine that overlap with the gluten molecule, and our immune systems uh, reacting to overdose of estrogen effect uh, don't distinguish that from gluten, and so the, the gluten interacts with chronic estrogen exposure to uh, uh produce uh, very serious uh, chronic inflammatory symptoms and uh that enzyme happens to be a crosslinker that uh, estrogen activates in the skin for example uh, it's um it ties protein molecules together and when this enzyme is extracted from uh, microorganisms. Bacteria make a similar enzyme. Uh, it can be used to tie any protein together that contains, I think it's lysine and glutamic acid, which is uh, basically any protein. And uh, the, the food industry is widely using uh, that enzyme to make artificial uh, fish and meat products uh, so if you if you go to a fast food restaurant and order a fish patty uh, you're probably getting uh, a mixture of seaweed gum and uh, fish waste fragments Ooh. glued together with this enzyme which cross reacts with with estrogen effects and gluten and uh, you would never expect uh, that sort of enzyme to exist in a fish patty, but it's industrially useful so that uh, lunch meat, uh, even things that are sold as, uh, uh, I guess, uh, lamb chops are imitated by gluing meat fragments together. They call it restructured meat. Uh, We we accidentally, we had been eating uh, squid patties for years and uh, there was something in the meat case that looked like the usual product, and uh, I cooked uh, two of them, and they shrank down to about the size of, of a silver dollar from having been about four or five inches across. Yeah, and uh, we recognized something was wrong, but uh, since that was what we had fixed for supper, we went ahead and ate them, and uh, got. Really sick. I was sick for over a week after eating it, ah. and so I looked up uh, what was happening to squid patties, and uh, they use uh, seaweed jelly like alginate or carrageenan to um, make a, a, a jelly, and then they they uh, sweep up all of the the waste products uh, that didn't have the right shape and grind them into a mush and add the uh, cross-linking enzyme so that the mush coagulates, but it's um, intermixed with with the seaweed jelly, so it contains a huge amount of water, uh, much more water than uh, the normal squid, so you you get terrific shrinkage, as well as as this weird chemical composition, uh, cross-linking the... Fish proteins the squid proteins with with the uh, seaweed uh, jelly
0: yeah, I, I don't think that would sell well on the menu at a restaurant
1: <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but 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 you you get it very often uh fast, fast food places especially uh, they used to uh, have textured soy protein that that looked like uh chicken or ham uh, they were very skillful at at Making a, a fibrous meaty appearance in soybean protein, but now they don't even have to uh, use uh, that much of a natural product. It can be uh, seaweed and, and waste meat scraps that are re- reshaped entirely.
0: Yeah, well, I always you do wonder when you go by the deli at the in the supermarket and and you see all those you know hams and roast beefs and. Other cold cuts, and they they're also uniform and perfect. A turkey loaf, and I suspect what you're talking about is how they achieve that that uniform look.
1: Yeah, and uh, all the studies that I've seen uh, comparing various foods, uh, one of the most carcinogenic is processed meats. Uh, just as as a big category, anything processed, but that mostly includes those loafy materials. So, I mean,
0: those meats are also uh, full of a lot of additives and preservatives and strange-looking uh, acronyms that represent chemicals. Uh, I suppose it's a combination of all that that is making them carcinogenic. Uh,
1: yeah, and um, the aging process, uh, they add deodorants and, and things to change the... Um, a smell of aged meat but um, just the practice of aging meat probably makes it more carcinogenic because uh, when meat starts to rot uh, the odor chemicals are um, polyamines yeah. uh, cadaver, cadaverine and, and uh, uh, putrescine are the chemical names of two of the things that aging produces and those uh, stimulate cell growth and uh, there are techniques being developed to uh, block the production of those in tissues to stop cancer growth, so their connection with cancer is well known and just uh, storage of the meat too long uh, will produce those things and and then on top of that they add the uh, various preservatives and even the Harmless sounding things like citric acid, uh, because, because they're produced by microorganisms from, uh, waste byproducts, uh, you, you get some of the chemicals from the industrial waste material that you started with and then some, uh, microbial, uh, additions to the mix no matter how careful they are trying to refine out of pure citric acid, it always has traces of where it came from. Huh. so even the nice sounding ingredients uh, aren't really so nice when when you might be sensitized to them
0: yeah that sounds uh, sounds rather discouraging and i oh I did want to ask you about aging meats because uh, a lot of people around here raise their own uh, cattle and sheep and things and and it's just common knowledge that um, that it doesn't taste good unless you age, you know, hang them for a few days. Or I think it's maybe five days at forty degrees. Uh, the the meat gets more tender and
1: gets more flavor, and uh, uh, it definitely gets more flavor. But that's um, uh, mostly advertising the uh, the people who are in the habit of doing it that way. Uh-huh. It's just to it taste better, but. Uh, The reason I eat more meat when I'm in Mexico is that it tastes better because it's fresh. Because they don't, uh, in the small towns where they don't have refrigerators, they just uh, sell it off the carcass. And so they have to sell it within the first two or three or four days. Yeah. And it it always tastes really fresh. And uh, it's very rare to find Fresh tasting meat in the U.S. Hmm.
0: I mean, up here the people the people I know who do it hang it for maybe four days at a, at a very cold temperature, like forty degrees, uh, which would be difficult to do in Mexico, I imagine.
1: Yeah, but uh, yeah, four or five days at at forty degrees, it still can taste very fresh.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But um, in the supermarket, they uh, the food technology people have said that. Uh, it gets tender after two weeks, so you shouldn't sell it before two weeks. But uh, it also develops putrescine and, and spermidine and, and uh, cadaverine that uh, are mildly toxic, possibly carcinogenic.
0: Yeah, I gotta say, putrescine doesn't sound too too good to me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, oh, go ahead. And the uh, the FDA has never been very enthusiastic or the agriculture department about enforcing the laws against uh, chemical treatment of the animals while they're alive. Um, uh, There is some pressure to make them um, not inject chemicals in the last day or so before they kill the animal. But uh, in Europe, uh, recently there has been... evidence that they're treating their uh, living animals with big doses of uh, glucocortical steroids to uh, break down the fiber while they're alive uh, to tenderize the meat. Um, Now, I thought Europe was averse to that. uh, Yeah, they are, but uh, they, I guess, aren't spending enough enforcement money, and so the industry is is getting away with breaking the rules.
0: You were going to say something else when I interrupted there. Uh,
1: Oh, uh, just that um, even though the rules are in place, uh, you can't trust anything that uh, that comes from a big corporation because the the FDA is uh, doing its best to look the other way. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, Yeah, I think that's... uh, We've discussed this before on various shows, and it does seem that the... Regulatory agencies are are really there to just absorb the liability of the corporation and be a buffer between them and the public.
1: Yeah, I think so. We
0: haven't discussed at all in detail growing practices. Um, You said that growing crops uh, in monoculture uh, makes plants produce a lot more toxic chemicals, the chemicals we've been talking about somewhat. Is there a way of growing things uh, that isn't so stressful? and? Um, uh, Yeah.
1: If the if the plant grows more slowly, uh, the soil will more naturally uh, release uh, chemicals that the plant can select from. But when they're adding chemicals that they know that the grower knows will stimulate the fastest uh, maturation and production or whatever they're interested in, uh, the the plant isn't absorbing uh, exactly the ideal uh, combination of nutrients and so it distorts the uh, actual structure and physiology of the plant. Uh, there have been experiments in which uh, corn was fertilized uh, heavily with um, uh, potassium in one case and with phosphate in the other group and they found that I forget which way it went, I think it was the potassium fertilizer uh, caused the the plants to emphasize their tassels, uh, the the male uh, pollen producing component and I think it was the phosphate fertilizer that um, made them overproduce the the female uh, cob uh, part of the the reproductive material. Uh, So you can uh, almost uh, change the the sex ratio the the balance between the male and female parts of the plant just by uh, pushing one or the other kind of fertilizer just for those two ingredients and uh, when they're uh, designing a fertilizer to produce uh, the most fruit or seed or whatever they're after uh, the plant isn't uh, going to be as happy uh, being forced in that direction so since it's it's having its physiology warped, uh, that's usually enough for it to uh, also produce some of the the toxic chemicals uh, defensively. And uh, one of the uh, things that people have known for for many years is that uh, the roots of plants generally have uh, less of the defensive toxic chemicals that affect uh, animals like us uh, because they're defending against uh, fungus and bacteria that live in the ground where the upper part of the plant, uh, the leaves and stems and seeds, are defending against uh, grazing animals and insects and people that, that pluck off the easiest parts to get at. So the, the worst toxins are in the, uh, the leaves and seeds, and in many cases, the plants um, want to spread their seeds, which are uh, defended by internal toxins, but they want to spread them by having birds or other animals eat the fruit and uh, pass the seeds through uh, to uh, propagate them elsewhere. And so the fruits are evolved in many cases to be. Uh, delicious, nutritious and non-toxic uh, so if you look at the the, the plant's uh, defense system uh, the fruits are almost always uh, the safest part and the roots would come in next as the, uh, the, the second safest the seeds are the very worst uh, f- for the, the plant's toxins and leaves are, are intermediate for toxicity
0: and is that in part why uh, so many people have uh, an intolerance of uh, gluten and flour products?
1: Um, yeah, all of the storage proteins uh, have the multiple function, not only to to pack a lot of nitrogen into the uh, into a small space in the seed, so that when water is available, enzymes can rearrange uh, the uh, the stored energy material with a nitrogen and double or triple the amount of protein uh, because uh, it basically just packed nitrogen into a specialized protein for storage. And those proteins also uh, have the uh, added benefit to the plant of uh, being irritating, indigestible, or toxic to lots of uh, predators.
0: I see. And somebody pointed out uh, recently, I think it was on a show with you uh, that uh, the gluten that everybody's, a lot of people seem to be allergic to these days uh, is considerably worse than it used to be because they've been actually breeding uh, wheat plants to develop more gluten because it's useful uh, industrially for producing food products and that's actually made it easier for them to produce bread but harder for people to digest it.
1: Um. Yeah,
0: that that sounds reasonable. Mm-hmm. And that sort of brings up the subject of uh, uh, the agricultural practice of breeding and uh, its new form of genetic engineering. Um, you know, a lot of uh, food products are being bred. I think more and more, not for uh, delightful eating, but for marketing and meaning that they ship well and that they'll store well.
1: Uh, but they don't necessarily taste well. Yeah, at all. Uh. Uh, yeah. Um, in in the nineteen forties, uh, tomatoes often had a very intense, nice, aromatic flavor, and I haven't seen a, a tomato like that for about fifty years, uh, because they're all the uh, commercial uh, seeds. Even people who buy seeds at at a Seed store are going to get non-traditional fruits. Every farmer used to have their own uh, variety of of vegetables and uh, those uh, heirloom uh, vegetables uh, have largely been lost. Uh, Some people are storing the seeds but uh, they aren't being widely propagated.
0: Around here, people are always buying, um, they are available, the heirloom tomatoes. but We've been plagued by blight these last few years, so I don't think many people have gotten great ones. Hmm. Uh, What's your take on uh, the effect of genetic engineering on food quality? Is there any benefit? Uh, We're mostly talking about the harmful effects of uh, uh, industrial practices on on food, uh, but perhaps there's a silver lining somewhere.
1: Uh, No, the genetic engineering, uh, the most uh, uh, common uh, thing is to put an insecticide protein into the uh, plant and uh, people or animals are known to uh, react uh, allergically to um, a strange protein that that wasn't there before and uh, other insects uh, they're, they're seeing butterflies killed by uh, the insecticides that were put there uh, to uh, defend the plant or make it uh, more profitable to produce. Yeah, uh, um, I think allergy allergies is the the main thing to worry about with uh, meddling with uh, uh, genetic composition
0: of plants. Mm-hmm. Well, this the allergies. Certainly seem to be on the rise to my from my observation so what 's your take on the,
1: the people's allergy uh, yeah, I think I think, um, I think all of the major allergic symptoms are increasing, but uh, uh, some studies show that uh, unsaturated uh, omega minus three fatty acids uh, in a woman 's diet when she 's pregnant uh, seriously increase the uh, allergies of the baby, uh, so it isn't just that the food supply is changing, but the the human supply is being sensitized by the, the stressful uh, things in a, in our national diet. And can you um, explain what that is, Ray? Um, well, the, the uh, omega minus uh, three fats are uh, oh, grass, for example, has more than than the the grain seed product, Uh, uh, the seeds have more of the uh, omega minus minus 6 fats, and uh, they're a little more stable. The minus 3, I think, are in the leaves because uh, they don't have to uh, be stable for so long. Uh, And uh, the um, cold temperature uh, resistance corresponds to the... uh, Highly unsaturated, especially n minus uh, three fats, uh, so that algae in the ocean at a low temperature will produce highly unsaturated n minus three fats that are known as fish oils when the fish uh, elongate them, and uh, they're being highly promoted uh, starting i guess w- with the waste from the fish industry. Uh, And the the discovery that the uh, linoleic acid uh, that was popularized as the essential fatty acid, they discovered that was pretty carcinogenic. (laughs) So there was a shift in marketing from um, the the cottonseed oil or safflower oil type of fat over to the fish oil type. And um, uh, all kinds of arguments have been advanced to... um, uh, encourage people to eat more of those uh, a French group uh, decided that since the brain of an adult contains lots of the fish oil like fats uh, on, on the diets that we've been exposed to and babies any uh, mammal before it's born uh, synthesizes mostly saturated fats out of the glucose and fructose uh, absorbed from the mother's blood um, so uh, the, this French group said uh, the baby's brains aren't getting enough fish oil and so they uh, set up an apparatus to make a sound and record the, the fetus's response to the sound and so they could tell how alert the fetus's nervous system was and they were going to demonstrate that they could make the fetus learn faster by feeding the mother fish oil and what they found was that the um, nervous function was impaired in the, the women who ate the fish oil, and uh, other studies showed that the babies would be more allergic too, but in the study of, of the learning ability, they also found that the babies were smaller, implying that their brains and bodies altogether uh, grew less under the influence of the fish oil, probably because of the Uh, anti-progesterone effect, uh, keeping uh, the bias in the uterus towards estrogen against progesterone, progesterone being the the brain uh, growth factor, and lowering uh, thyroid uh, in proportion to the unsaturation of the fats. So uh, the population which has its progesterone and thyroid suppressed is going to be the, the more allergic, uh, stressed population.
0: And you're saying the fish oil is also included in the same category as, uh, vegetable oils like, uh, safflower oil and cotton oil and, um,
1: uh, uh, corn well, oil. The, the all the unsaturated a big difference oils. Is, is that, yeah, the seed oils are, are highly unsaturated, but they're, um, uh, n-6 means that they have a tail of five carbon atoms that are saturated uh, like uh, stearic acid and and palmitic acid are things that we can s- synthesize in our bodies out of sugar and those are all saturated and very stable but at least the seed oils have this chain of of five completely saturated carbons at the tail end. The fish oils, at 3 have only two stable carbons at the end, so they oxidize much more easily.
0: I get you. So in the few minutes we have left, Ray, um, perhaps we should try to strike some kind of a positive note. There is food out there to eat, um, and what, in your opinion, is the food that people should be focusing on, uh, both for pleasure and for health?
1: Um, well, fruits, if you uh, know that they're uh, grown in a safe, uh, unchemically treated environment, uh, it, it's fairly hard to find really ripe fruit in the stores, but if you can find ripe oranges uh, or tangerines, oh, those are very safe uh, to for juicing, for example. And eggs, if you can find... Uh, eggs that weren't fed uh, uh linseed oil or soy oil or uh, uh, something that gives them a fishy taste uh just go by the taste uh sweet oranges uh eggs that taste uh, like eggs and not like like fish meal uh, and meats that that taste fresh uh, milk it's important to judge the taste of the milk too because uh There are so many uh, different feeds that the cows get. If they feed uh, a natural pasture that's full of allergenic weeds, uh, organic milk can uh, be allergenic just because the cow is eating uh, a weird mixture of vegetables.
0: Yeah, I I just... Um, Go ahead, sorry.
1: Well, well, those those foods um, are really the only ones... I trust it all, and I'm suspicious of them in in the American stores. Uh, Eggs, milk, some cheeses, you have to uh, be very cautious with cheeses because they're putting uh, seaweed and other gums in them uh, to increase their water content. Uh, Eggs and meat are... uh, among the safest.
0: And they're in- just to go back to the, <laughs> the, the dark side, uh, they're increasing the water content for what reason? To get more money
1: for the cheese? To add, add to the oh, weight? Oh yeah. they can, um, they can add 30% to the weight, uh, just by putting more jelly in it. Uh, there was a Wisconsin parmesan that I ate for years and suddenly it, uh, got <laughs> soft and moist and, uh, caused bowel inflammation in me so I stopped that and found uh, the uh, Parm- uh, the real Parmesan uh, called Reggiano uh, is the only one that I eat now and a couple of other strange ethnic cheeses from Greece or or uh, Italy still have the traditional methods and you
0: said that uh, I thought I've heard you say that uh, fresh cheeses are safer to eat than aged cheeses, but it sounds like you're eating some aged cheeses.
1: Uh, yeah, because uh, I can't find any fresh cheeses in the U.S. Uh, that don't have additives. And what's the difference between, uh,
0: in terms of uh, uh, benefit, what's the difference between fresh and aged?
1: Um, the the um, They should be uh, chemically and nutritionally very similar in value, but the aging process uh, typically involves the growth of a fungus uh, that uh, improves the taste for um, giving them aromatic qualities, but it it uh, is also a risk if if they use a different fungus than one you're accustomed to. So, uh, for security, uh, cottage cheese, if they haven't added anything, is very safe, but uh, I don't uh, use any cottage cheese now without washing it because uh, the ones that I have access to add lactic acid and uh, what they call dressing. <laughs> so, uh, so by rinsing it, I lose about 30% of the, the weight of the material, but it comes out to be a clean clean milk curd. So milk,
0: eggs, and uh, some meats, if if you can find some that are... I guess any of this, these foods, if you can find them, that they 're raised uh, without pesticides
1: yeah and and fruits um, uh, some of the very specialty things that you only see once or twice a year, even in very uh, adventurous stores, uh, curimoyas and sapotas. Uh I think California and Florida uh, grow some good Uh, uh and uh some of those uh, very sweet, mushy uh, uh, pawpaws are available in uh, parts of the, the south, especially. Uh, occasionally, they come out to the coast. Uh, but uh, the, the southern states, they're a traditional fall fruit. Uh, no, I've there, never had any of them.
0: They sound, all sound very exotic.
1: Well, they're, they were like George Washington, I think, said the pawpaw was his favorite dessert. Is that right? They're they're very common native dessert, but uh, it's the industrialization. They're tender and fragile, mm-hmm. and so they aren't good fruit of commerce.
0: Oh yeah, it's like like a real peach. Which I actually <laughs> had one of those fairly recently, and it was it's unbelievable when you get a real yeah. peach. Yeah. Hey, uh, you know one uh, dairy product that we found recently that was uh, that we think is pretty good. It's called Faya. It's a
1: it's a Greek strained yogurt. Um. Yeah. It seems um that they've got most of the lactic acid out of it. Um, yeah. That, yeah.
0: And it has no extra ingredients listed on it, so it just seems to be milk, maybe some salt.
1: Yeah. But the main thing wrong with with ordinary yogurt is that it's got lots of lactic acid in it and so it's basically the same as cottage cheese for safety. I think it's good.
0: Yeah. So if you can strain the lactic acid, which we've covered in other shows, but you don't think it's a good idea to eat extra lactic acid, um, then it's a good food.
1: Yeah, um, it should be minimized. That's why I don't advocate uh, aerobic exercise. Um, uh, People should do everything they can to minimize uh, lactic acid. I think I'm going to do a, a newsletter on cancer and and the role of lactic acid in in cancerization. But it, it also promotes inflammation and fibrosis and degenerative diseases. So it's good to avoid it in the foods as well as from, from produced by stress.
0: Well, uh, I look forward to that newsletter, Ray. And now we are actually out of time, so. I should tell everybody that we've been talking to uh, Dr. Raymond Pete, has a Ph.D. in biology and extensive uh, studies under his belt in the fields of physiology and biology and uh, endo- endocrinology and knows a lot about science history. So uh, you can visit his website at raypeet.com uh, where you'll find the articles we were discussing today in part and uh, many, many others. So Ray, thanks so much for coming on Politics and Science today.
1: Okay, thank you.
0: The interview you just heard with Dr. Raymond Peet was recorded on the 7th of January, 2012, and much more information can be found about Dr. Peet's work at raypeet.com. That's R-A-Y-P-E-A-T dot com. And podcasts of this show are sometimes, and hopefully will all be available, at Politics and Science on Radio for All. Dot .net radioforall.net and search for Politics and Science. I've been your host John Barkhausen. Thanks for listening and tune in again next week for another edition of Politics and Science.